On the surface, Glenn and Bessie Hyde's disappearance is almost straightforward. And what I mean by that is there will probably come a time in this episode where you'll think to yourself, I know what happened, it's obvious. The evidence suggests only one logical conclusion. But when that time comes, know there's a reason this case is still shrouded in rumors and speculation. There are plenty of surprises, and each one relates back to the same question that started it all. How far would you go for a bit of notoriety and adventure? I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I want you to meet a pair of newlyweds who decided to go on a grand adventure for their honeymoon in 1928 and never returned. Their names are Glenn and Bessie Hyde. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Part of what makes today's case so unique is it's not the story of a single disappearance. The Hydes vanished together, as a couple, in a daring attempt at fame and fortune two things they eventually achieved, for all the wrong reasons. But first, let's start at the beginning. It's the spring of 1928, the Roaring Twenties, and the United States has a booming economy. The stock market's up, motion pictures are taking the country by storm, and fame is starting to take on a whole new meaning. More than actors, though, adventurers are being treated like celebrities. Daredevils and record-setters like Charles Lindbergh, George Mallory, and Amelia Earhart. And this trend gives one 29-year-old farmer an idea. Glenn Hyde just married his wife, Bessie. Bessie's an East Coast transplant who works at a bookstore in San Francisco and takes classes at the California School of Fine Arts. Glenn's the son of an Idaho lumberjack, an outdoorsman, and a bit of a wanderer. They met on the water, of all places, a steamboat, 
And for their honeymoon, he wants to take a trip down the Colorado River, just the two of them. They'll see untamed wilderness, spend nights under the stars, and explore places no one has ever been before. Plus, Glenn's pretty sure they can get famous in the process. See, Bessie's long dreamed of becoming famous in Hollywood. And since no woman has ever made it through the stretch of river that passes through the Grand Canyon before, this might be her shot. And to up the ante, Glenn's hoping they can be one of the fastest boats to ever make the trip, finishing in about a month and a half. That kind of story will guarantee full audiences at vaudeville theaters, maybe even a best-selling book. The trip might not make Bessie a starlet, but her name will still be on everyone's lips. One half of a daring couple in love, carving out their place in history. Of course, it sounds simple when you put it like that, but in practice, the trip they're planning is really dangerous. The Colorado River is 1,450 miles long and runs through some of the rockiest terrain in North America, especially in the Grand Canyon. There are tons of boulders hidden underneath rushing rapids that can easily punch a hole in a wooden boat. And when a powerful current rolls over sharp rocks, water usually pushes down and back against the stone, causing a vacuum below the surface and white water above. The current can pin floating objects underwater for anywhere from a few seconds to a few minutes or longer. Even the best swimmers can quickly drown. And Glenn and Bessie, they can swim, but they're not bringing life jackets. Now, this sounds completely and unnecessarily dangerous, because it is. But for full context, during the 1920s, life preservers weren't nearly as effective as they are today, or as fashionable. They were basically just canvas belts with chunks of cork, big and uncomfortable. They definitely didn't make for the best photo ops. Plus, Glenn and Bessie have navigated difficult waters before, figuratively in their relationship and literally. Glenn once took a homemade boat down the Salmon River in Idaho, and he did it without a life jacket. It was a shorter and less treacherous trip than the Colorado, but Glenn's confident he can make this honeymoon work. He's even making another one of his homemade boats for the occasion. This is important. For some reason, Glenn's enamored with this type of boat called a scow. I don't know why, but it's not because they're practical. They're boxy and heavy. Picture a wooden coffin without a lid. To steer one, you need to stand on a platform and use these massive eight foot long oars called sweeps. Each one weighs over a hundred pounds and they're more like rudders than paddles. They pivot on the front and back of the boat, not the sides. To anyone watching, it looks like you're rowing the boat sideways and they're really hard to control. But the hides clearly like a challenge. So they set out on their honeymoon excursion on October 20th, 1928 from Green River, Utah. And basically everything we know about what happens next comes from three sources. Bessie's journal, some letters they sent home, and the few people they meet along the way. So piecing together what happens on the river involves a bit of patchwork. Bessie's journal paints a pretty clear picture of the beginning of their journey, 
based on her writing, the couple's in great spirits, loving nature and loving each other. She writes about a couple rough rapids, but doesn't report any injuries or damage to the boat. On November 8th, almost three weeks after launch, Glenn's father, Roland Hyde, receives a letter from his son. This is the first piece of communication from the newlyweds to the outside world. Glenn writes, Arrived two days ahead of schedule. We had a fine trip so far and are enjoying it immensely. Bessie is feeling fine and eating everything but the boat. In the first rapid, Bessie fell out, everything but one heel. It was great sport. It's good news. With under a month left, the hides are still having a great time and they're moving faster than expected. So they're on track to break those records. But after November 8th, an alarming pattern appears in Bessie's journal. It's not the words that change though, it's the numbers. See, Bessie's been marking every rapid they've gone through with a simple shorthand. She writes zero for every small rapid and one for every big one. It's like binary. And as the days tick by, there's more and more ones. The difficulty is ramping up, but they expected this. They knew it would only get harder. Fame comes with a price and the thrill's part of the adventure. But after another week or so, they reach Grand Canyon Village, one of the largest campgrounds on the river, and their mood totally changes. It's like all of their excitement bottoms out. At the village, they meet a man named Emery Kolb, a renowned Grand Canyon explorer and river guide who lives just above the campground. It's one of the only real human interactions the hides have over the course of their trip. They spend an afternoon with Emery, and after a month on the river, they have some stories to tell. It turns out that the sweeps, the boat's 100-pound, 8-foot-long oars, are impossible to hang onto in the rapids. They swing wildly around and have thrown Glenn overboard twice. Once after knocking him in the chest, a second time after hitting him in the chin. He managed to get back into the scow both times, but when Emery looks over to Bessie, she's having a hard time concealing her fear. She's not trading stories like Glenn. She's certainly not Bessie Hyde, the daring adventurer. She's removed, withdrawn. Her mind seems preoccupied with what still awaits downriver. Like she knows, the worst is yet to come. And it is. Over the next day or so, Glenn and Bessie will have to navigate one of the most difficult stretches on the river, called Hermit Rapid. It's littered with jagged rocks. And when they get through, there's still another 15 miles of rapids on the other side. So this stopover at the Grand Canyon Village is basically their last chance to call it quits. But they don't. They mail a few letters, bid farewell to Emery, and cast off. Now, the Hides meet one other person after this. Before they take on the rapids the next day, they pull over to eat lunch on the riverbank and run into a hiker. It's not a long interaction, and Glenn spends most of it talking about the money they'll make when they're famous. But Bessie mostly stays quiet. When they finish lunch, they say goodbye and push off toward Hermit Rapid. 
the hiker watches until the hide scow disappears around a river bend. And that's the last time they were seen alive. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com running. New Balance. Run your way. It's early winter, 1928. Back in Idaho, Glenn Hyde's father, Roland, is waiting for a telegram from his son. He was told to expect a message that his son and brand new daughter-in-law completed their trip down the Colorado River by no later than December 11th, at the absolute latest. But by the 12th, there's no telegram. And it's been three weeks since Glenn and Bessie were last seen. One day is enough. Roland has a feeling something bad must have happened to Glenn and Bessie. He doesn't assume the worst, but knows if they're out there, alone in the wilderness, they need help. So Roland Hyde packs a bag and heads to Arizona to retrace their steps. I've mentioned a few times about how important the first 48 hours are in missing person cases. But the challenge here is nobody knows when Glenn and Bessie went missing. It's been 24 days since the Hydes were last seen having lunch by that hiker near Hermit Rapid. They were 375 miles away from their destination, 180 miles of which passes straight through the Grand Canyon. So they could be anywhere along that stretch of river. Roland doesn't know if something happened to them weeks, days, or even an hour after leaving Hermit Rapid, if something happened to them at all. All he knows is Glenn and Bessie aren't where they're supposed to be. Without knowing where to start, Roland heads to Griggs Ferry, a heavily trafficked outpost near the exit of the Grand Canyon. He's hoping someone there might have seen them pass through. It takes him four days to get there, only to find out there's been no sighting of Glenn, Bessie, or their scow. It's a sobering moment. Glenn and Bessie didn't make it out of the canyon. They're still in there somewhere, short on supplies, maybe trapped, hurt, or worse. Roland sends telegrams to the governors of Idaho and West Virginia, asking for help finding his son and daughter. And it works. The governors actually forward the request to President Calvin Coolidge. And Coolidge immediately responds. Remember, this is an era where explorers and adventurers are considered American heroes, so the missing couple is considered big news. A day later, the president orders the U.S. Army to perform aerial searches over the river, 
And while officials fly overhead, Roland keeps retracing Glenn and Bessie's journey. On December 17th, exactly 30 days since the hides were last seen, he arrives at Grand Canyon Village. It's where they postmarked their final letters and where they met Emery Kolb. Roland speaks to Emery. He gets all the information he can. Then he practically begs Emery for help, asking him to go downriver looking for Glenn and Bessie. After all, few people know the waters better. But Emery hesitates. He doesn't want to risk his own life. He saw firsthand the danger and worry in the Hyde's eyes before they left. In his opinion, they weren't physically or mentally prepared for what was in store. If they haven't been seen or heard from, he doubts they made it. Now, Emery's reaction may seem cold, I know, but calculating risk is part of his job. He's been doing it for most of his life. And he knows extreme environments. He knows that sending search parties into them blindly only puts more lives at risk. But the next morning, a discovery causes Emery to reevaluate his decision. An army plane spots a boat floating in calm waters about 30 miles downriver from Diamond Creek. After the plane flies Emery over the area, he confirms. It's definitely Glenn Scow. It's empty, there's no sign of a campsite or Glenn and Bessie. But with some indication of Glenn and Bessie's whereabouts, the calculated risks suddenly seem more worth it. Emery will take a crew downriver to the site. Because Roland can't swim, Emery tells him to meet them at the end of the canyon and wait. About a week later on Christmas day, Emery and his crew reach the scow. It's about 140 miles downriver from where Glenn and Bessie were last seen. A rope lodged in some rocks has kept it in place this whole time. It's dry and intact, almost as if Glenn and Bessie tied it up and never came back. The search party scours the area, shouting the couple's name, but there's no answer only echoes through the remote, untouched wilderness. They aren't able to find any tracks along the shoreline, but it's rocky, so that's not necessarily an indication that they didn't go ashore. But there doesn't seem to be any way up the sheer canyon walls. Plus, all of the hide's belongings are still in the boat. Bessie's journal, Glenn's rifle, their hiking boots, and their food. It's confusing. If the hides drowned, there should be some indication that they went into the water. And if they abandoned the boat to hike or hunt, they would have taken their gear. But it's all still there, undisturbed. But there is good news. Bessie's journal reveals two critical pieces of information. First, Bessie's final entry is dated November 30th almost a month ago, 12 days after they were last seen. And second, based on Bessie's tally of rapids, their last known location was a place called Diamond Creek. Unfortunately, Emery and his team can't get there right away. There's freezing weather coming in. So they gather everything the hides left behind and cut the scow loose. In an eerie final moment, 
they watch the boat drift back into the river's current, slip over the next rapid, and smash into pieces. As you might imagine, hope is hard to come by at this point. If Glenn and Bessie are alive, they are in some of the harshest terrain in North America. And winter is swinging into full force. As a result, most of the search and rescue team members assume the worst, including Emery Kolb. Whether they drowned or got lost, either way, he believes they're dead. But Roland Hyde refuses to give up hope. The thought of losing his son and daughter-in-law, losing the future he dreamed of for them, for himself, is too much to bear. He steals himself against other conclusions and pays searchers to scour the area for another decade. He eventually stops looking in 1938 after finding nothing, no evidence and no news. He dies seven years later, never learning what happened to his children. Glenn and Bessie's legacy, on the other hand, lives on. They don't achieve the fame they were after, but over the next 30 years in the Grand Canyon, their disappearance becomes a part of local lore. The topography of the river changes, sections are dammed to create lakes, it becomes safer to navigate. And as adventure tours gain in popularity, river guides entertain tourists with tales of two young lovers who took on the river, but were hopelessly unprepared. Instead of heroes, the hides become a cautionary tale. One October night in 1971, a river guide named Rick Petrillo is telling the story to one of his tour groups. He's standing around a campfire and says it was just a few miles downstream from here that the hides disappeared. And then, out of the blue, one of the tourists, an older woman, looks at him and says, I know, I'm Bessie Hyde. In October 1971, four decades after Glenn and Bessie Hyde's disappearance, a member of a Colorado River tour group announces she is Bessie Hyde. The news shocks everyone around her, but then her story gets even stranger. When the tour guide asks her, what happened back in 1928? Staring into the fire, the woman says, I killed him meaning Glenn. According to her, they got into a bad fight. Glenn beat her up, and late one night, she stabbed him. She dragged his body into the river, turned the boat loose, walked to Peach Springs, and hopped on a Greyhound bus. Now, obviously, this is an astounding claim for a number of reasons. Up to this point, there's been no indication that Glenn showed any signs of being a domineering or abusive husband. Most people described him as calm, an easygoing outdoorsman, motivated, maybe a little reckless, but an abuser? And Bessie was reportedly a strong-willed woman who felt comfortable speaking her mind. Those who knew her felt that she would have no problem telling Glenn if she ever felt unsafe on the river. I don't know what the fight was about, but murdering someone, even in self-defense, and not telling a soul? 
From the limited resources that exist, it seems out of character. Not to mention, in her version of events, she cut the boat loose. She didn't tie it up. And we know that it was found stationary with a rope lodged in some rocks. Of course, it's still possible. The rope could have gotten tangled on its own, but it's worth mentioning. In the moment, no one listening to the woman's story presses too hard. After all, she's around the same age Bessie Hyde would be, if she was still alive. The details she provides are pretty consistent with history. They have their doubts, but they don't want to call her a liar. So for the most part, they walk away taking the account for exactly what it was, a good story. But no one bothers to follow up, and it doesn't take long for rumors to start spreading. As the years pass, the woman's original claims alter and mutate. The mystery of what happened to the Hydes becomes a tale of marital betrayal. They're no longer two young, ambitious adventurers in love. Glenn's a violent abuser. Bessie's the helpless ingenue. Like their journey downriver, their marriage was doomed from the start. The rumors renew interest in Glenn and Bessie's disappearance. But in time, it becomes harder and harder to separate fact from fiction. And that's the problem. As Rick Petrillo, the river guide who first heard the woman's tale says, you can grab a hold of a rumor and remember it for 50 years, but it's still based on nothing. And he's right. One woman's singular claim isn't evidence of what happened to the hides, but a body is. Five years after the woman's campfire tale, Emery Kolb passes away. It's a sad day for the many people who loved him. But when Emery's family travels to his canyon home, they find a surprise in one of his canoes, a complete human skeleton, the body of a young adult male with a bullet hole in his skull. When news reaches the public, the rumor mill explodes. Everyone's wondering whether the skeleton belongs to Glenn. Maybe the woman was actually telling the truth. Maybe Bessie did kill Glenn and Emery Kolb helped hide the body. Maybe the real reason he didn't want to go searching all those years ago was because he already knew what happened. He was in on it. Maybe Emery and Bessie were having an affair. Suddenly, the Hyde's fame skyrockets. Of course, nobody knows what's real and what's not, except for the human skeleton. That's real. So a murder investigation begins. The skeleton is sent in for testing. Dr. Walter Berkby, a forensic anthropologist, analyzes the bones. He specifically focuses on the bullet hole in the skull and learns the slug was 32 caliber, manufactured in 1902, meaning it could have killed a man in 1928. After confirming the man is about as tall as Glenn, all of those rumors start seeming more and more plausible until Berkby lines up the skull with old portraits of Glenn. The facial features don't match at all. Based on the bone structure, the skull belonged to a man who was around 20 years old when he died. In December, 1928, Glenn was close to turning 30. 
but I can't say that I'm shocked. The facts don't seem to change people's minds. Stories of infidelity, love triangles, and murder continue to haunt the Hyde's legacy. The revisionist history continues for almost 15 more years until one historian decides to settle things once and for all. In 1985, he tracks down the woman who started it all by claiming to kill Glenn and be Bessie Hyde. The historian asks her point blank if she was telling the truth. And the woman says, no, she made it up on a whim for no other reason than she thought it would add some suspense to the tour. Now, by no means is this the first time a random person has inserted themselves into a missing person case. Fake tips, false confessions, they happen far more often than they should. It's inexcusable. And if I'm being honest, this may be one of the worst excuses I've ever heard. Sure, her story did reinvigorate interest into the Hyde's disappearance, but attention isn't always a good thing. If interest in a missing persons case is reliant on scandal, it's not helpful. It's disrespectful, damaging, a distraction, and it just gets in the way of actual progress. In 1996, nearly 70 years after Glenn and Bessie vanished, a professional river guide named Brad Dimmick and his wife tried to replicate the Hyde's trip. And they did it in a hand-built scow, just like Glenn's. For safety, they wore two life jackets each, helmets and top-of-the-line clothing for wet, cold conditions. Plus, they were trailed by a support crew in a motorboat. In the end, they found the scow was practically uncontrollable. Whenever it hit a big rapid, the oars smashed into the deck and the person holding them would get knocked overboard. Even with all of their precautions, the Dimmicks chose to stop before they passed through mile 232, right around where Bessie's journal entries stopped. They decided it was too dangerous. They left in awe convinced that they had reached where Glenn and Bessie's journey ended, knowing that to make it that far was a miracle. Proof of the couple's determination. Now, most experts generally agree with this. The Hydes most likely drowned, right around mile 232. And I think I do too. But the one thing I keep coming back to is the way the boat was found. Sure, the rope may have gotten stuck in some rocks, which is why it didn't travel downriver. It may not have been tied intentionally, but there was hardly any water in it, meaning it didn't capsize. And the oars? They might have sent Glenn or Bessie overboard, but not both. Which, in my mind, means one thing. Glenn or Bessie chose to go in after the other. Love makes people do strange and daring things, like marriage, like taking a record-setting journey down an unwieldy river. Like I said, part of what makes this story so unique is that the Hydes vanished together. So no matter what rumors are most interesting or what conclusions are most true, the story of Glenn and Bessie Hyde is something special. It's a love story, 
filled with leaps of faith. Next episode. Love, loyalty, and trust are all tested when an Earl disappears in 1974 and leaves a murder in his wake. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing person case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.